Let's pray real quick and then we'll get started here. Father, um, you're challenging me in time with you, time with others. I just, in that challenge, I'm going to challenge everyone here to find time to get with you and find time to get with others in you. And just watch and see what you'll do. We're going to talk about the greatest story ever told today. And uh, see where it takes us. We love you and thank you in your son's name. Amen. All right, greatest story ever told. How many know the movie? Pretty much, there's an age limit on who knows this movie. Um, it was made in 1965, and I was John Wayne one of the one of the soldiers in it. I want to say that he was one of those that he was in there. Anyway, many there were movies made in the 50s, 60s, and 70s along the biblical backgrounds. Um, one of the most famous is the Ten Commandments. Yep. Let my people go. I just Ben Hur. Ben Hur's great, by the way. Uh, yep. Uh, one of my all-time favorites, actually. Every time PBS. This is interesting now because if you think about this, public broadcasting station. Okay. Now think of that in terms of today's day. The public broadcast station used to have telethons every year to raise money so that they had it. And one of the ways they raised money was to show the movie The Robe. The robe is a story of the guy, basically, it's a fictional story of the guy who received the robe that came off of Jesus' back at the crucifixion. And then it, it plays out all the way through to the end to where him and this woman basically are going to meet Jesus because they're being killed for their faith in Jesus after it's all said and done. Now, what a change in time where PBS... Um, showed a, a movie that basically proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that time, that's a great... And stories are everything to us. I don't think we communicate without telling a story of some form. Communication is built upon it. Stories educate us. Teachers use stories all the time. We use stories up here. You use stories. Somebody says, hey, how was your day last week? You tell the story of whatever it was that you did, whether it was a 10-second story or a 10-minute story. They entertain us. We use stories to entertain us all the time. I've already used two movie quotes, I think, in here. I let my people go, and I may, may use more. We all know this, but stories have obviously entertained me in my mind, and they stick in there. I mean, those, kind of, those are the lessons that stick. In terms of that, my own understanding of a lot of the Bible goes back to my Bible to, to my uh, my Bible, you know Sunday school days when I was a kid. I grew up in the days of the felt boards and the stories of Moses and Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father. Abraham. I mean, Zacchaeus. I used to sing my dad. My dad taught me Zacchaeus in the in, in, in the song Zacchaeus when I was one and a half years old, and he's got a recording of me saying it. I mean, stories were hugely important as we entertain and educate our children. Us. They influence us greatly. Stories obviously have a great influence on us in what we think, what we see, what we believe, what we hear. And they're designed even to create emotion. Okay? Now, the world uses these stories. When I say the world, I mean the world outside of Christian circles. They use these stories in movies and TV. Here's a new one, YouTube. Um, I'm not going to shove a show of hands, but 
even our older generations have found a useful amount of time searching a subject on YouTube, finding a video that may be a nostalgic thing. It might be a movie of the, of the past or something. My father actually does this. Uh, he goes back and watches old Oklahoma Sooner football games. He watches you know, old Yankee games that, that come on YouTube. Uh, but down, on-demand content actually has kind of changed how we've even brought in information and, and listened to these stories. News, books, teachings. Side note, bunny trail. If you didn't know how important story was, the movement going on right now is to change the story of this country. Okay? The enemy knows if you get story right from their perspective, they can change the very nature of who and what we are. So what do they attack? They attack the founding fathers. They attack the story of how this country was founded. They attack our history all the way across the board, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they're going to start attacking World War II and things of that nature that are basically trying to attack the very nature of what this country has been up to this point, and they've been very effective at it. That's how important story is. They're going after the stories that we've known our whole lives to get after this generation that sits to our right. Okay, that's the side note. That's just the importance of how stories are of huge importance to us. Stories are of huge importance to God. The Bible is made up primarily of stories. stories. Okay, they come in the forms, they've got narratives. Narrative, long sections. Genesis is basically one long narrative, correct? Correct. It's a story basically of the creation of the world all the way up through the family, the descendants of Abraham moving into Egypt. The entirety of, of Genesis is a narrative. Exodus pretty much for the most part is a narrative. We start getting into some other kinds of storytelling in um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers where we get some descriptions of things and so forth. Parables. Jesus told parables, correct? correct. Parables are just another version of story. In fact, and, and, and even Jesus said the parable was designed to kind of hide the meaning of the story until that meaning was revealed at the proper time, right? But it's telling of a fictional story to create and to, to give you some sense of the truth. Gospels. We say gospels. They were, they were long letters written. Each Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were long letters written to somebody to proclaim to them what? The gospel, which is? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And the Gospels do it in a very unique way. So unique that we kept those letters for now thousands of years and hold them to be the true testimony of who and what Jesus is. Letters. Letters are interesting. Who wrote letters? Paul? Who else? Peter? James? John? Wrote some letters, correct? Letters are interesting because in, if someone's telling a story, they kind of give you the full story, the full narrative, the full idea of what's going on here. In a letter, Paul was writing to the people of Galatia or to Rome, to, to, to the church in Rome, but you only got one side of the story, Right? You, it didn't give the full perspective of what was going on. You only got the words and the voice of Paul saying, here's what's going on 
to wrong. So letters are interesting and difficult to read sometimes because we read into them sometimes things that aren't either necessarily there. Okay? Prophecy and apocalyptic literature is there. They tell a story, but they usually tell the story through um, metaphors, similes, large things that can be difficult really to understand and in some cases are not designed to fully understand. I'm, I, I, you can stand before me and, and say all you want that you understand every word of Revelation. I'm going to call you a liar. Okay? Because you're not, you don't understand everything that's coming up. That's difficult to do. Those are the stories God uses in the Bible. With that, I'm going to tell you two, a tale of two stories. One story comes from the well-known place that everybody preaches from, the book of Numbers. Okay? Um, if you're, now, I want to see how honest we are in here. How many people have ever started to read the Bible all the way through and quit? I have several times. Okay? And let's see if I can describe how this goes. Genesis, you're cool. Genesis is awesome. You're going to read through this starting in Genesis. Genesis, we're quality, it's solid. Exodus, man, there's some high action going on. You got the Pharaoh, you got Moses, you got let my people go. You know, you got that whole thing going on in Exodus. You hit Deuteronomy, Genesis, Leviticus. You hit Leviticus, excuse me, my, my brain had to go through that. You hit Leviticus, and boy, now the action kind of slows down a little bit. Now you get these long, drawn-out things about the tabernacle, right? Uh, descriptions, genealogies at some level, um, who, what, when, in, 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 you know, what, what tribes were a part of this, that, or the other. There are, all of a sudden, I start getting Leviticus, and I start getting through long sections where I'm basically reading, but my mind, if you've done this before, you read, but your mind is elsewhere. You, you, I, you did read it, but it's not quite, you didn't get it. And that's good. Then you get into Numbers, and Numbers is usually the quicksand of the Bible, where by the time you hit the book of Numbers, if there's a little bit of give up in you, you're going to give up. Just saying, that's how this goes, okay? Numbers 27, 1 through 11, and then Numbers 36 contains a story that doesn't seem to really make a lot of sense in the narrative sense. What was the purpose of this? The story goes like this. The man's name was Zelophehad. Zelophehad. Zela, Zela, not going to work here anymore. Uh, anyway, um, he had five daughters. Okay? Now, what's the problem in Jewish culture if you had all daughters? No sons to carry on the name and or the inheritance. And this is a very important time for the Jewish people. This is when they're about to go into the land of Israel that God gave them. And they're going to divvy up the land amongst the people. And this is going to go towards each of the individual families and so forth. So the daughters of Zelophad went before Moses and said, Hey, what about us? Our father didn't have any sons. It's not fair that the, these lands should go to somebody else. They were in the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was one of Joseph's sons. And so in terms of the 12 tribes of Israel, they were in Manasseh. Interesting here is that Moses goes, okay, and takes this not to priests, takes this not to a group of individuals in there. They actually take this before God. 
Okay? This is not a metaphor. It's not like, well, we prayed to God and see what... And sometimes they did this. Jewish culture had this thing where they had these stones that were... Uh, uh, they were basically lots, dice. There are version of dice. They'd say, hey, God, what should we do? <laughs> Rolled the dice, and, they, and that's what they got. This was not that. This they was... A dreidel. They had dreidels. The... Moses actually took this before God himself. And God himself actually ruled on this. This is interesting. He actually said, God said, you know what? If a father did not have sons, then it can go to the daughters, or the land can then go to their um, brothers or sisters, or their uncles, or their aunts, or cousins, all the way down until there was finally, you know, basically almost friends at this level. But gave a line of succession so that the inheritance that someone had would not necessarily just be given up, okay? That was what was happening, and that happened in Numbers 27, 1 through 11. Numbers 36 is actually the last book of Numbers, okay? So an entire, or last chapter, excuse me. The entire chapter is now about this story because it takes it from just the inheritance given it to him to actually describing the fact that if those the, part, the woman that got it decided it was in her best interest to marry outside of the tribe of Manasseh, that over time, that land would become a part of Reuben or become a part of Judah, not part of Manasseh. And that even then, then there's this whole year of Jubilee thing, but it basically it would end up, it would end up outside the tribe of Manasseh. But if in her wisdom, she decided to marry within the tribe of Manasseh, that land would then become a permanent part of Manasseh and her legacy and her sons and sons and sons, okay? Usually Numbers 36, when I got to Numbers 36, I read through it going, and I was happy and smiling because I was done with Numbers, right? I've read that stuff probably five, six, seven times over my lifespan. Never once did I pay attention to the story. Didn't care. In the, in the vernacular of the youth today, cool story, bro. <laughs> okay? That's what they would say. Doesn't seem to have a lot of meaning. Second story. Well, this actually, let me, let me go one more, one more step. This story was so important, allegedly, that when you got to Joshua, it recounts the story and what actually happened when they handed out the land, and I actually wanted to read this. Heifer's son, Zelophad. I'm going to butcher these names. Grandson of Gilead, the great-grandson of Manasseh's son, Masher, had no sons, only daughters. These are the names of his daughters. Maliah, Noah, Hogalah, Milcah, and Tizra. They appeared before Eleazar the priest and Nun's son Joshua and declared, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance amongst our relatives. So in keeping with what the Lord had commanded, he gave them an inheritance among their ancestors' relatives. This is why ten allotments fell to Manasseh, besides the land of Gilead and Basham, beyond the Jordan River, since the granddaughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the sons of Manasseh. That's a lot of ink given to this seemingly outside story, right? I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of what was going on you know, with Israel and so forth, this is pretty, this is pretty detailed information, it doesn't really give us much. Second story. 
Jehoiakim, or Je- Je- I like saying Jeconiah better, because actually the man was known by both names. Okay? Jeconiah was the final king of Judah. So you had Israel, over time, the people of Israel had split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, the southern kingdom, which was Judah. They had different kings. Israel had really fallen off the cliff in terms of idol worship and in terms of the way they treated people. And they had 150 years been taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, the Assyrians took captive of them and kind of laid desolate to the land of northern Israel. Judah lasted another 150 years. Okay? Jeconiah was in the line, this is, and Judah had the line of David. So from David there was, who was the next king after David? Solomon. See, see who can name after Solomon? Rehoboam. There you go. Rehoboam was after Solomon. And then this starts to get pretty murky in terms of their behaviors and what they did before God, basically. They were always known. All they did was turn to idols instead of God. That was the big one. And the second one was they would basically treat people unjustly. You know, they would make unjust contracts, unfair interest given on things. They basically would almost put their people in slavery in terms of how they treated the poor, the destitute, and so forth. So God was in severe judgment of them for those two things. By the time we get to Jeconiah, this is now um, King Nebi, Nebuchadnezzar. If you ever watch the uh, VeggieTales series, you get Nebi. Anyway, um, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and takes over. And he actually leaves Jehokanai in charge. And he starts to plot against Nebuchadnezzar with with the Egyptians. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and lays some heavy judgment and basically, uh, I think, kills his entire family in front of him, if I'm right, if, I'm, if that's who this is. Kills his entire family in front of him. And then blinds him and sends him off to, uh, to, back to uh, um, Babylon. Okay? Not cool. Lots of story in the Old Testament, whether you're in the Chron- First Second Chronicles, First Second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, talk of Jeconiah and all of the, the stories of this. But when you get into Jeremiah... Jeremiah tells the story of Jeconiah in pretty distinct language in, in 22, 24 through 30. And when Jeremiah gets to verse 30, he says this. This is what the Lord says. Write this man, Jeconiah, off as childless, a man who does not prosper in his lifetime. None of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ever ruling in Judah again. Pretty serious stuff. Okay. Kind of, again, cool story, bro. What does this have to do with anything? Or is it? Let's, let's go here. As we go to look at biblical stories, there are approaches that we tend to take. This comes down to our time with God and our time with others. We look at stories sometimes as standalone. Here's a standalone story. Um, it's neat. It's cool to hear. There may be some life lessons that we can get, glean from it. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a neat story, and then we move on to the next story. Almost, we almost read it for entertainment's sake. We teach our children sometimes that way. There's nothing wrong with that because, let me tell you something, those stories that were told to me as a child have huge meaning as I moved into adulthood because they were in my brain. Didn't mean I understood them at the time I was told, but having a basis in them was great. Self-helps. We do look to the Bible as self-help. 
Help me with anger. Jealousy. You know, with my problems, with my money issues. We go to the Bible as self-help. So we approach these stories of the Bible from the perspective of, help me, help me to help you. Anyway, see, see, there's another movie quote. See how, see how I do this? This just happens in my head, sorry. Academic exercises and knowledge. A lot of people go to the Bible as an academic exercise. Really, it's a status thing. They, they actually want to stand up before people and go, look how cool I am because I can quote this thing from the Bible all over the place. Um, or better yet, Dan, these are the, the, the word theologians. There are people who do nothing and have absolute, actual jobs to sit there and study the Bible uh, in some academic exercise that really doesn't have any meaning or any purpose in what they do. One that we're probably all guilty of at times is duty and guilt. A lot of us, if we were actually being honest about why we wanted to read through the Bible, we would probably place it in the duty and guilt section. Hey, it's my duty to do it. I need to. Which is probably part of the reason that I failed three or four times in doing it. Because out of duty and guilt, it's a good start, but it doesn't sustain you over the time. And finally, people come to the Bible to teach. This is another problem of if you're up here, if it's Will or me or, or Randy. Um, one of the things that can happen to a teacher is you can lose the passion for Jesus because I'm trying to teach it all the time. Okay? The common thing about most of these approaches is almost universally they have everything to do about me. How does the Bible help me? What does it do for me? How does it make me feel? They're all about me. We write ourselves into the story. If it's, if it's a good guy, okay, we write ourselves, like David, we write ourselves that we're David, and we read all the nice blessings and cool things about David, and we kind of skip over all the stupid things David did. Because he did some stupid things. Okay? And if it's a bad guy, we definitely write ourselves into the persecuted of the bad guy, not the things that the bad guy was actually doing. Okay? These things become all about us. And it affects how we see the story. So when we read through numbers, it's just a story. It's just this odd set of things that we was told that God told the women that Moses and that came to Joshua. Who cares? And Jack and I was, yeah, he was a bad king. And yeah, okay, great. His line ended. Who cares? What does that have to do with me? Because in this, those two stories don't have a lot of life lessons in them. You could get a little bit maybe out of Jack and I and say, okay, hey, don't be a moron. That's a pretty good lesson. He was a moron. He was punished. That's good. But there's not a lot of life lessons going on in these two stories that are in, that, are, that, that we've talked about. How did Jesus approach the Bible? Road to Emmaus. What happened on the road to Emmaus? Jesus had been resurrected already. So he's, he's out. His, his disciples have, have known now and, and gone about, but he hasn't really been announced to the world per se or, 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 or as much. And two men are, are basically walking back to Jerusalem. Uh, they're not disciples. They're not known to... I think it names one of them as Cleophas or something like that. 
But two men are walking back, and they're actually having a great discussion. They're having a discussion about what happened in Jerusalem. Oh, my gosh, did you see what happened to Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, this guy was a teacher. He performed miracles, and they killed him. Can you believe what happened? How terrible of a tragedy this is. How awful it is. And they're having this conversation. Jesus comes up behind them, but is hidden from them. They don't know who he is. They don't know that he's Jesus. And he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And they described this situation going on. Don't you know what happened? Are your, is your head basically under a rock? Okay. And Jesus, without letting them know who he is, says this. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus didn't approach the scriptures and the prophets and Moses from the standpoint of self-help or from guilt or duty. He approached them from the fact that these things said had to do about me. The ultimate. You know, in John 5, before this incident, in John 5, he's actually being questioned by the Pharisees, and this is where he's kind of claiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God. And he looks at him and he says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. You think they give you self-help. You think they give you some kind of, uh, of worldly blessing. We can substitute a whole lot of things here because this eternal life had everything to do, again, about me. The Pharisee, their eternal life, their way, they're searching the scriptures for eternal life for themselves. But the scriptures point to me, to Jesus. That's the filter that we take these through. That's the way in which the proper way Jesus says to approach the Bible. To approach these stories is to see it. But let's see if this works in, in the case of our two stories that I just told that had seemed to have nothing to do about anything. Oh, actually, if we go to Acts, if you want another area where, where, where they talked about this, they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Who was that? Who? The Bereans. When they went to, the, went to Berea, they actually they, they presented the gospel to the Bereans, and the Bereans actually did what Jesus kind of asked them to do. Search the scriptures looking for him. And they found him. And the gospel was presented and people came to Christ. Back to our two stories. Let's look at these two stories through the lens of Jesus. Jesus was prophesied to be what? What was he? He was to be born of what tribe? Judah. And he was to be born in the line of David. What did I just... Jeconiah, actually, if you go to the book of Matthew, Matthew is the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written to present Jesus as king. That's how, that was Matthew's perspective. A lot of Matthew have to do with king, kingdom. He is the reigning king that's going to come and rule over all, okay? So in the first beginning of Matthew, they actually go through the genealogy of Jesus. Who's his dad, and who's his dad, and who's his dad's 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 dad? And one of the persons in Jesus' record was Jeconiah. 
Does this create a problem with the story I just told you about? Okay. So, Jeconiah was supposed to be the end of the reign of anybody from David. It was prophesied it's a curse. God's word's either going to be held true or it's not. In this, the Gospel of Luke, which is actually written to present Jesus as the Son of Man, not the King, not the kingdoms, but as the Son of Man, actually gives a second genealogy. This genealogy actually is the genealogy of Mary, who came from Judah through David, but where Mary and Joseph split was, Joseph was from the line of Solomon, which was the kingly line, the, priestly, the, the royal line, and Mary came from David's son, Nathan. So Mary did not inherit the royal blood, but also did not inherit the curse of Jeconiah. Okay? Interesting. No inheritance there, so this story has some meaning. Okay? Jesus' prophecies about who he is, is there. Jesus was born of Mary, which was, who was, what, what, did, did he have a father? No, he was of virgin birth. No father, no line, that, no line that was going to actually bring the curse upon him. He was married, he was under Mary, whose father was God himself. Therefore, not under the curse, but right now, currently, not under David. Let's go back to our second story. What did we learn in Numbers about inheritance? If there's no son, if there's just daughters, and you can be handed the inheritance to you. And it even went a step further. It said if you marry within the same tribe, that all of those things are going to be permanent for you. So Jesus... Born of Mary, not of the royal line, inherited the royal line because Mary married Joseph. That was a lot of, that was married, married Joseph. There you go. Married, married Joseph, keeping inside the, the, the tribe of Judah, so that stayed. All of the inheritance that were given, promised down through David, now are, are, are now associated with Jesus and the prophecies of Jesus. Hold true. That is a vastly different way to see the stories of the Bible rather than a standalone or a self-help, seeing them through the eyes and lens that Jesus, the Son of God, the preeminent. When was Jesus created? He wasn't. If you go to John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. From Genesis 1 through Revelation 21, this whole thing is about Jesus. If you want to understand when you're reading through the things, the difficult times, the difficult things that you sometimes read through when we get into the Old Testament, and we read about the temple or the tabernacle, right? Here's this, where's, where's Rick at? Rick, hi. How much stuff is talked about the tabernacle? Pages and pages of details of what's going on. 
Pages and pages of detail is given to what the Jews have to sacrifice at what time for what particular sin. And I mean, it's eye-watering. Just, you can't, it's, it's hard to get through. Because it's so detailed in everything it talks about those things. But when you get into the fact that we're now the temple of the Holy Spirit, no longer the tabernacle and no longer the temple, when you get into the fact that Jesus was the beginning and end of this story from the beginning, all of this language, all of these sacrifices that need to be done, being done in the person, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, something different happens to how you see Scripture. In the model that's before, the common approaches, when it's all about me, it's really easy to walk away from a Bible study, from church, from time with others, with the burdens of what we should be doing. Okay? When you walk out of a church, when you walk out of a Bible study, the burdens of what we should be doing are, are, are almost constantly on our minds and move us out. The problem with that being the focus is that leads you into shame and to guilt. Because the Sermon on the Mount basically laid it on the line. Your righteousness has to be that of the Pharisees and greater in order to be able to do the things you think you need to be doing anyway. So it's not possible to do this. So when you walk out of here with those burdens... You're defeated already. What's the goal then in reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus? What did we see here? What do we see? Gary, Gary's not here, but Rick, Rick and Gary, one of the things about your class that is so unbelievable is when people walk out of your class, they do not feel burdened by what they should be doing. They feel wonder at what Jesus has done. That's the difference between reading the Bible for yourself and reading it for Jesus. All of a sudden, the story is no longer about you. The story is about the amazing grace, love, mercy that God has given us through the person of Jesus Christ. So that instead of being burdened by our guilt, we've been set free by the blood of Christ. I'm going to get them up here right now. Um, I think that's, it's something difficult to communicate. Um, We love religion as people. We love lists of do's and don'ts. We want it easy. This life's not easy. When you're living in the freedom that Jesus offers you, it's not an opportunity to live out the desires of your flesh. In there lies the rub and the balance. We want the wonder of Jesus in our hearts and of God and of this whole story. When I say the greatest story ever told, from beginning to end, this is the greatest story ever told. This freed you from your sin. This freed you to live an everlasting life with with God in heaven forever. 
It's not just Jesus' story. It's the entire thing. So when we come to communion, we're going to do communion today when they play. I just give you a slight description of it. You get up on your own, you grab it. I think the cups and the wafers are both together in the cup. So you have to sit down, um, pray, think about what you want to think about, and take it on your own. So I do want to give you a description of how we do it. But this time in communion, because communion always to me had been that kind of time of, I don't want to say reflection that's bad, but it is a time to be able to see your guilt and shame. And way too often, I think I stopped there. I saw my guilt and shame. I took the cup and I went on. This time, today, in times moving forward, we're doing this together. As you take communion, remember the wonder that is Jesus. The creation, how powerful and awesome this creation is. How everything ties together. Nothing is left to chance. See his wonder, see his love, and then go out and experience that with other people. Time with God. Not to show, not to show us how bad we are, but to see how awesome he is. And time with others to share how awesome he is with each other. Love you guys. I'm going to pray for communion. Father, we thank you. We come before your table. We're going to eat the bread and we're going to drink the cup. And we're going to remember how awesome your plan really is. And that it affects everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. Not a thing was left unturned in terms of the scope of who your son is and what he's done for us. Be with us as we go about, go out. Um, let us just worship God in our hearts and together. We love you and thank you in your son's name. Amen.